0: Have Bibles? Why don't you turn over to um, Philippians chapter two? That's a good place for you to start. So go to Philippians chapter two, and um, th- our st- our summer series this summer, our series this summer is one act of righteousness, and it's based out of what Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse eighteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And in that one phrase, Paul calls one act of righteousness, we learned through our introduction that what he's really referring to in a kind of theological shorthand are nine unique aspects of what we call Christ's saving work that Paul sums up as one act of righteousness. And so far in our series, we've been familiar with three of those. And coincidentally, three of them have holidays associated with them, so that makes it a little bit easier, right? So, you've got the incarnation at Christmas, right? Can anyone think of the other one? Another holiday that we celebrate that helps us think about the saving act of Christ? Christmas, incarnation, what else? Resurrection, Easter, and His death at… Good Friday, right, so, so three of the four we've been very familiar with, and um, we don't have a holiday for his sinless life, maybe that would help us remember that whole aspect of it, but we are familiar with those. Now I'm really excited to get to this chunk that we're looking at, and the reason um, I call it a chunk is there is a logical ordering of these different acts. So it makes sense, for example, to put together His life, death, and resurrection as one chunk. And so this morning we start kind of a new chunk, and it includes His ascension, His session, Pentecost, and His intercession. Uh, This morning, we're focusing on the ascension of Christ, and this is the pivot point of his nine saving acts. So, we're talking about the ascension. Now, of the five remaining, and I've already mentioned four of them we're familiar vaguely with at least two of them. So you might be familiar with Pentecost, and that's because, you know, if you, maybe you have a background in the Pentecostal charismatic church or movement, so because of that, we're more familiar with the Pentecost, and or you might come from a liturgical background where in which Pentecost is more part of the annual calendar. And then we're familiar with the second coming, because after all, who's not interested in the end of the world, right? So, so we're interested in those things. But when it comes to his, Jesus' ascension, his session, and His intercession, Christians generally are entirely, we, we entirely don't know anything about those, at least Christians in the Western church. If you're part of the Eastern church, you're very familiar with the ascension. As a matter of fact, that's, a, that's something that, that's a holiday they observe, but in the West, we know very little about those three things, which is why I'm particularly excited to, to dive into them so, as a church body collectively, the ascension, his session, and his intercession, uh, for for a way of kind of wrapping our minds around what is kind of an abstract concept, collectively, they tell us what Jesus has been and what Jesus is currently doing. Not unlike a young child has no idea what mom and dad do every day to to put a roof over their heads, put food on the table, and put clothes on their back. Um, and, And to be clear, the kid doesn't have to know that for mom and dad to continue to do that. But what gratitude he or she grows in as they get older, realizing all that mom and dad did to take care and bless them every day. In the same kind of way, what you're going to learn in these next couple of weeks, while admittedly it may not be the most kind of practical in the um, how-to or do-it-yourself sense we're accustomed to in our society, what you'll learn really will begin to be able to, if you pay attention... To be able to fuel your worship, and when you get down to it, that's one of the most practical things you can do in your life, to have the right fuel for your worship. So this morning, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus Christ, and to do that, we're going to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is the ascension of Jesus? Two, why is the ascension of Jesus important? And then number three, how does the ascension of Jesus impact me? Now, we do have a couple of young kids in the sanctuary, so this is what I want to help you to dial into the sermon, and I'll let you know when we get to it. We're going to read as a church, or I'm going to read, and you guys will follow along, a couple of passages of Scripture. And when I tell you that, I want you to see if you can draw out what that passage of Scripture is trying to describe. And so it's going to be kind of challenging. It's going to stretch your imagination, but that's always good, and I'll let you know when we get there. Let's look at the first question. What is the ascension of Christ? Jesus. To give you a quick definition. Let's put it this way that the ascension of Jesus is the turning point of Jesus' earthly activity to his heavenly activity, his heavenly service. It is the pivot point when Jesus has taken care of what he needs to hear so that he can set up things to take care of there. Now, I, I realize here and there are very sloppy words. And what I mean by them, I'm trying to use two different modes. Here, meaning earthly, understanding, temporal time, our limited reality. There, being eternity, the presence of God, and, and the uber reality, so here and there. Now, this is a challenge if you've been a Christian for longer than a year. Um, we become so familiar with things that they can border on the mundane or, or, or maybe even boring, or we feel like, oh, I, go, I got this. But, you know, the the president of Princeton University, Jonathan Edwards, once said, in speaking of Jesus, that Jesus, and you got to love colonial English. So, he says, Jesus is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, okay? An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. And then Edwards goes on to talk about some of the illustrations of that. Like, he says, Jesus is referred to as the lion and the lamb. And and as I read Edwards, I kind of stepped back and went, yeah, that's so true How many of us as Christians, we hear the expression Jesus is like the lion and the lamb, and we don't think how bizarre that is. Either we're so used to Christianese, or we've never actually seen a lion or a lamb, because you can't get two more diametrically opposed animals, one, a, the king of the jungle that has no, uh, no predator, he is the apex predator, and the other, the most vulnerable and, and seemingly innocent and tame animal there is, yet both of those are one and the same in Jesus Christ. And so, we read that and go, yeah, Jesus lying the lamb. Uh, no, Edward says, this is the most amazing conjunction of diverse excellencies, all the strength of a lamb and the ferocity and the gentleness. Wait a minute, did I say Lamb. Yeah. No, 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 no. The the lion, right? And the, the gentleness of a lamb in one. And Edwards goes on that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the first and the last in Christ. Time and eternity meet. The divinity and humanity come together. The here and there all in one is Jesus. All that to say is that the historical event that is the ascension is is the pivot point where everything shifts. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus stops being those diverse collections, but that there's a shift in His redemptive activity, and that's what the ascension talks about. It's kind of like the apex of of a turn. When I was in my 20s, I used to have a motorcycle and Um, A lot of times when young men with their motorcycles, they like to ride them really fast. So I learned about racing through corners, and there's something called the apex of a turn. The apex of a turn is when the velocity by which you're decelerating coming into the corner is at the perfect balance of the velocity required to accelerate to get you through the corner. It is the point at which everything has to shift correctly. And in the same manner, the ascension of Christ is that apex of His ministry where it shifts from His earthly activity to His heavenly activity. Now, what I want to do is read two passages, two types of Scriptures right now. One, so that we can see what's going on from the there perspective, God's cosmic perspective. And then the others are from what we saw what actually happened. Does that make sense? So, kids, here are the verses that we're going to read. So, jump to Philippians chapter 2. You should be there by now. Starting in verse 7, here is the ascension of Christ. You can see the shift of Jesus' ministry right here in verses 7 through 10. Paul speaking of Christ, but Christ made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the pivot. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you actually see there the pivot Jesus comes down he says he came down humbled himself by taking the form of a servant like us and even to the point of death and therefore he's now exalted so you see the pivot of what's taking place in the there Now let's look at what it looked like from our historical perspective for that I want you to go to the last chapter in Luke's gospel Luke chapter 24 and as you're getting making your way back to Luke 24 as you're going to pass Acts 1, I want you to put your finger in Acts 1 because we're going to jump there next. We are going to be digging around in the Scriptures a lot more than usual today because the ascension is, I mean, there's a good chance none of you here have even even heard of a a sermon on the ascension of Jesus Christ, right? Right? So what I want to do is build a theology for you to understand it a little bit more. So we're going to be in the Scriptures a little bit more than normally. I'll I'll have some on the slides, but I want you to, you're going to be doing a lot of this, okay? So Luke 24, we just read Philippians 2. We saw what it looks like from the cosmic perspective. Here it is from an earthly perspective, starting in verse 50. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing, continually in the temple blessing God." Now flip over to Acts chapter 1. If you didn't know this, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were originally one volume kind of thing, and there was this natural divide. So, uh, Luke-Acts was separated to, to keep the genres clear. But Luke ends the ministry of Jesus on earth in Luke 24, and he begins the ministry of Jesus in heaven in Acts chapter 1. That's why he records the same event, but with a subtle difference here. See, it is Acts 1, starting in verse 6. So, when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, if you were okay writing in your Bible, I would underline and a cloud, because we're going to come back to that later, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so the ascension. And friends, there's much more going on here that than just these couple of passages. I don't want you to think the Ascension is that point where Jesus is standing on the ground and then just kind of floats into the sky. Okay That's not it. There's so much more going behind that. but every detail of Scripture has a point. That's what's so amazing about God's word that, that there's literally, I mean Jesus has himself said, not a jot or tittle will pass away. There's a reason all this stuff is in here, and I want to unpack that for you, right? So this is going to be good, but I need you to just dial in. So the ascension is more than just these three verses. We're going to look at it, but I wanted to show you the cosmic reality of what's going on and the historical reality of how it happened here. But it is this historical point where His earthly redemptive ministry activity ends and His heavenly ministry begins. As you'll see starting next week as well, the ascension also fleshes out our understanding of Jesus, what He's doing now. And and clearly next week when Jesus talks about Jesus' session, the power he has because of that, the ascension helps us understand the benefits we have of our salvation, which in two weeks we're really going to focus in on Pentecost, right? And then it also talks about our mission as a church and even kind of what's called eschatology, the understanding of last things, all based on this ascension. We'll unpack all of that. But in answer to the question, what is the ascension? Pretty easy by this point. Two words I gave you key words. It's the turning point, it's the pivot point. I'll give you third, three, apex point where things shift. And the, the humiliation of Jesus, and what I mean by humiliation, it's not like he was embarrassed, but him going from eternity past in the glory with the Father, taking on the form of a human. And I know we don't consider that humiliating, but I mean, when you're God and now you're constrained to a human body, that's, a, that's a coming down some, right? it's when he comes down, but now he is glorified again. So it's that pivot point. Second question is, why then is the ascension of Jesus important? Oh man, I forgot to show you the slide. Okay, so, so here you can see it perfectly. You can see the hinge point, you can see the pivot, you can see the apex. We had the incarnation, the sinless life, his death, resurrection, and there's the ascension. And notice from there, it pivots now onto a session, Pentecost, intercession, and second coming. So you see how strategically the ascension is located right in the middle of those two. Now, the, question, the second question, why is the ascension of Jesus so important? So the ascension, like the resurrection, it, it, it vindicates the divine identity of Jesus as well as establishes the effectiveness of His redemptive work. And what I mean by that is this. In Jesus' resurrection, okay, so, so Jesus' resurrection proves something really phenomenal, that death has no claim on Jesus. Now, if you want to know where death came from, the Bible tells us death comes from sin, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We die because we sin. The Bible's not offering a scientific explanation for it. It's just telling you this is how reality works. We die because sin came into the world. If you're a note taker, write down Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. The Lord said, look, if you do this, you will surely die. What happens in chapter 3? We did the thing God told us not to do, and death came into the world. We say, but that didn't happen in chapter 3. Actually, the the very next chapter in chapter 4, what happens? The relationship between Cain and Abel died, that's for sure, and then Abel actually died because Cain killed him. So see how this is working. In chapter 2, God says, if you disobey, if you commit sin, death is the consequence. In chapter 3, they disobeyed sin. They disobeyed. Sin came in. In chapter 4, death appears. But the real zinger is in chapter 5, the one we all tend to ignore. You know why? Chapter 5 is just the genealogy. Like, who, it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so. He lived this long. They lived that long, right? And you go, oh, I got to go over to chapter 6. But guess what you miss? In chapter 5, the repeated phrase, And he died, 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 and he died. died. The reason Moses writes that is because we're seeing the warning in chapter 2 playing itself out in dramatic, tragic reality. Everyone dies. But in the resurrection, Jesus lived a sinless life, so death had no claim on him. And so His resurrection proves His sinless life, and he had, death has no claim, and so life is His. In the same manner, or in a similar manner, the ascension proves that Jesus is the Son of Man who has the right to rule with authority at the right hand of God the Father in power. So the resurrection proves that Jesus was the sinless one, so death cannot claim him. The ascension proves that Jesus is the authoritative one, so all things must be subject to him. That's how these two work together. Now, whether you understand the complete nuances is not the point. I want you to understand when the Bible talks about Jesus' savings work, there's so much more there that we have not appreciated. And this is just the reality of that. So what I want you to do now is... Okay, back in Acts, right? We read Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. I just want to point your attention to it again, verse 9. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up into a cloud, okay? Why is that important? Skip over to Acts chapter 7 with me. Acts chapter 7, and specifically at verse 55, what's happened up to this point is that um, Jesus ascends to heaven. He gives the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 the church explodes thousands of people start coming to Christ it is a sociological cultural phenomena that there should be no reason Christianity explodes and all of a sudden in a weekend there's thousands of Christians all over the place Stephen just a regular Jewish man who realized Jesus was the Messiah gets on fire we would say for the gospel and starts doing amazing things in the name of Christ starts preaching the gospel and he gets arrested And so the the religious leaders bring him to court, bring him to trial, and basically he has to give a defense for himself. And what he does is basically preaches an amazing sermon. So here we are in verse 54. Now when they, the religious leaders, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now poor Stephen, this is the only sermon this guy ever preached. And what's the result, right? Everyone gets mad at him, and they're just grinding their teeth at him. So, um, I personally have never experienced that. But here's this poor guy; he preaches his one sermon. Everyone's upset. But what? What about what is? What? How does Stephen respond? Look at verse fifty-five. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out in Acts chapter two, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, "Behold." I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow. But verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they rushed at Him to kill Him. What is going on here? Stephen knows he's about to die. And as he is looking up into heaven, God gives him a vision of something that fills him with courage enough to meet his impending death right then and there. He knows what's going to happen, but he testifies to what he sees. What does he see? What he sees is, uh, let's see here, did I skip this? Oh, okay, we read that, we read that. Okay, sorry. Um, What he sees or what Stephen is quoting is from Daniel, the prophet. and and, and this is not the part that Stephen's quoting. Uh, Stephen quotes uh, verse 11 through 13, or excuse me, verse 13 and 14, but I want you to read some of the background to what's going on, because friends, I guess one of my points that I'm making this morning is if our eyes are only looking at the things of this world, you're not going to live the way you're supposed to, but the early Christians always saw the reality behind this world, and it fueled them, and it fueled Stephen to face his death. Stephen sees a vision of what Daniel's writing about. This is what Daniel writes. As I looked, thrones were placed. This is in the Old Testament. And the Ancient of Days, another name for Yahweh, another name for God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning fire like God has a hot rod, right? It is on fire. I mean, think of that. Imagine what that looks like. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousands served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. What is Daniel seeing? Daniel seeing is the end of all things. When God is making His judgment, when all of humanity will give an account for what they did and how they lived. And, and Daniel's writing this out. This is in Stephen's mind. Do we know, how do we know that? Look at what he says here in the, the next verse in 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Stephen was being stoned, and he looked, and he saw the ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father, and he says, that Son of Man that you guys see in Daniel, that you have no idea who he is, given power and authority to rule, I see Jesus standing like the Son of Man in clouds, Why do you think uh, Luke makes a big deal about clouds taking Jesus away? Because Daniel said, like a cloud, the Son of Man comes on a cloud. Stephen says, that's who Jesus is. And they get so ticked off, they murder Stephen right then and there. Stephen saw the ascended Christ in power. The early church saw the ascended Christ in power. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1. That God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to the language far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he goes on in the Philippians. My point is. Every other page in the New Testament, the writers are gripped with the risen, ascended Christ, and that fuels them with courage to turn the world upside down, to live different lives. Friends, the ascension is the moment. I mean, it's not just Jesus floating up into the clouds, right? There's so much more going on here. It is the moment when our great high priest goes into the heavenly temple to present the blood offering, His blood to make atonement, to wash away, to get rid of our sins. And He does it not as a kicking, uh, fighting sacrifice like every lamb before Him ever sacrificed. He's a willing sacrifice. And He does it for you and I. Friends, keep in mind, everything in the Bible was written to point us to Christ not just individuals, but events and systems. If you're familiar with Exodus or Leviticus and all those chapters where they go into great detail about the sacrificial system and how and why it works, the reason it's there is so we can see it when it's fulfilled in Christ. Like the priest would slaughter the lamb and then sprinkle the lamb's blood on the altar and then take the blood into the Holy of Holies, Christ, like the lamb, was slaughtered. And as the high priest, he himself goes into that temple with the blood, his own blood, which is often a symbol of life and death, interestingly enough. And he shows that the crimes of humanity have been paid for. Our debt has been paid for, and there's the blood of the one who paid the debt. Not someone that had to be coerced into it, not somebody who got dragged in, kicking and screaming, but a willing sacrifice that could represent the people who had committed the crime was now giving his blood. Let me read, I don't have a slide for this, but let me read to you Hebrews 9, and verse 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, the is important because that, that's where Jesus, He goes and presents, this is the work, the job's done. Salvation's secure. So, We ask, what is the ascension? It's the pivot point, it's the turning point, it's the apex when Jesus' earthly ministry transitions to his heavenly ministry. Why is it important? Because it vindicates Jesus as the one who is the son of man, given rightful rule, authority, power to reign supreme at the right hand of God. The last question we have to answer then is this. How does the ascension of Jesus matter to us today? And I'm kind of running out of time, so let me make just three quick points. I'm going to frame them this way, what He did, what He's doing, and why it's important. First, what He did. Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 7, that unless He goes, or He has to go in order to send the Holy Spirit. There it is. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says when, when after the ascension, they see the ascension, the Holy Spirit's poured out and just radically people are coming to know Jesus and confessing their sins and trusting in Christ. Peter says that's exactly what's taking place. Look at it, Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's speaking of Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, Peter, as as thousands are repenting of their sins and turning to Christ the Messiah, which is completely unheard of, right? Peter says, what you're seeing now is the result of the Holy Spirit that He promised that He would give us when He ascended. So, God, Christ is making good on His promise. This is what He did. So, He sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, gang, uh, the Holy Spirit enlivens us, he enables us. He empowers us. The Holy Spirit, to say, is, is like the engine of what makes your Christian faith go. This is really important. And I know as people more from a Reformed tradition, talking about the Holy Spirit gets us a little nervous, right? Because like, oh man, the Spirit, it's like my crazy uncle. I was like, yeah, he's part of the family. Can we just not talk about him though? Because you don't even know what he's going to do, right? And, and And partly because there are some abuses in the church that go under the guise of the Spirit. But friends, the Spirit is the animating power of your Christian life. If you are not relying on the Spirit to energize, to enliven, enable, and empower you, are you just relying on the, the, the content of knowledge that you have, on moral fortitude to just be different behaviorally? Guys, that, that's, that's not the intention of the gospel. Because what happens if you're successful? You'd be like the most self-righteous, suffocating religious individual. But if you recognize that the only change that you are able to accomplish is because of the grace of God's Spirit indwelling you, causing you to thirst for righteousness and thirst for holiness in ways that are before you were a Christian you would have never imagined, only that leads to a graceful, winsome Christian life. And so, we're going to talk a lot about that when we talk about Pentecost in two weeks. But, man, what He did for us, He didn't leave us a religion, friends. He didn't leave us a bunch of rules. He left us His Spirit, right, to enliven, empower, and enable us. But, so that's what He did. This is what He's doing. John chapter 14, this is what Jesus tells us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, if you trust in Christ, right now, He says, I'm preparing a place for you. I am preparing a place for you. For you. If, if I were to tell you I want to go on vacation, with, I'm inviting you on my vacation and I'm going to take care of the details, you probably have a good right not to expect too much, right? Because the most you're going to get out of me is probably a weekend trip at Casper's maybe, right? And definitely Vienna sausage and spam, but that's about the extent of me preparing for you, right? But if a Jeff Bezos Or a chip, or what's her name, Um, Joanna Gaines says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What is your level of excitement and expectation, right? Our joy is in direct proportion to the one who's preparing the details for us. Friends, can you imagine Jesus saying, look, I'm going away. I'm going to send you the Spirit. While I'm gone, I'm going to be preparing a place for you. And so so when I come, so and because of that I want to come back and bring you to myself Friends, in uh, three weeks, and then Chris Lim is going to talk about Christ's intercession, where we talk more about what Jesus is doing right now for you and I. And it's good, because he's been working on it for months. It is good. But suffice it to say, Jesus is not hanging out in eternity, just eating chips and salsa, right, waiting for the sequel at a second coming after 2,000 years. Okay, now i got to do something again. Can I, can I fit back into the Messiah suit? This is still good. I'm in. That's not what's happening. Jesus is actively ministering and working on our behalf right now. And the reason that's important to say, friends, is because it is so easy for us as dutiful Christians to look at the Bible and say, well, yeah, God, He did some amazing things back then, and He changed people's lives then, and and yes, He's going to come back and do amazing things in the future, but is there anything right now? Do, do Christians just believe in life after death, or do we believe that there's life before death as well? We need to know that Jesus is not just powerful in Palestine or some time in the future. The ascension reminds us that He is powerful right now. That there is, He is standing at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning on our behalf at this very moment. Stephen, in the book of Acts, he saw it, and it fueled him to meet his death. Was he married? Did he have children, young children? I don't know. But he saw the ascended Christ. He saw what reality is about, and he says, there he is, do what you want. Daniel the prophet saw it, and he was one of the most amazing statesmen in all of antiquity. By faith, Paul, the apostle, all the disciples, the early church, every Christian in church history had a vision of the ascended Christ, and it fueled their lives, and it changed their world around them. They didn't see their lives in light of the situations and issues of the world. They saw their situations and the world in light of the ascended risen Christ. I think Mel prayed about, and we've been singing about, where we keep our gaze. That's exactly why we have the ascension of Christ. Where we keep our gaze is very important, I talked about the apex of a turn, but there's another thing I learned about motorcycles that that, that has good application to the way we live. It's a principle called target fixation. The idea is when you're coming through a corner, wherever your eyes lock onto, that's where you're going to go. So if you ride a motorcycle, you're trained never to look at what's in front of you, but always look to where you want to go. There's a lot of overlap to our lives. Say what we will about what we want our lives to be, it's where your gaze is set that determines where your life's going to go. That's a strong principle. So many people have ideas of what their life should be, but their gazes are on the wrong wrong thing. It's either the injustices done to their lives, the, 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 the wrongs, the hurtful things, the bad memories, or conversely, material success or the American dream or just the next good weekend getaway I can have. Both of those are the wrong gaze, right? We need to have our gaze on the one who overcame injustices, the one who reconciled all humanity in Him, the one whose value and worth and beauty far transcends anything in this world. We have our gaze set on that, and it doesn't matter what kind of turns life brings to you, you will get through. But the other doesn't, it doesn't work the other way. If we keep looking at the things of this world, we're going to crash in a ditch, The ascension of Christ was given to us to remember right now, not just in the past, in Bible days, not just in the future, but right now there's a risen Christ who reigns and is on the throne of eternity, reigning supreme, and He is the one we keep our eyes on, and that's how we make sense of the world we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this this subtle but key doctrine of the ascension of Christ, Father, we thank You that we're, we don't just pull ourselves up by the moral bootstrap, but we watch Christ, and, and He did the same thing. He looked to His Father constantly, what His Father was doing, what His Father was about, who His Father was, and it guided His life. Father, we want to do the same thing with Christ, as Paul wrote the Corinthians, as we behold, as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, we're transformed, one, glory, one degree of glory to another. Father, it's the same principle. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted by things that matter least from the thing that matters most, and that is that Your Son is ascended on high, and He rules with all dominion, power, and glory. Lord, we pray that that would fuel our lives, fuel us as as, as insurance salesmen, as clerks at a grocery store, as, as lawyers, as construction workers, whatever we might be, that we have a vision for the ascended Christ. The way we love our families, the way we sacrifice for our friends, the way we give of ourselves was because we see with confidence that there is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If that could fuel our brother Stephen to face a martyr's death, Lord, what that could fuel in us, we don't know. But in faith, we accept it. And we ask that you make that our vision in Jesus' name. Amen.